Welcome to Consider the Constitution, the podcast that cuts through the noise and provides insight into constitutional issues that directly affect every American. Hosted by Dr. Katie Crawford Lackey and featuring interviews with constitutional scholars, policy and subject matter experts, heritage professionals, and legal practitioners, we examine the rights and responsibilities of citizenship. Consider the Constitution is brought to you by the Robert H. Smith Center for the Constitution at James Madison's Montpelier. Hello and welcome to another episode of Consider the Constitution. I'm your host, Dr. Katie Crawford Lackey, Director of the Robert H. Smith Center for the Constitution at James Madison's Montpelier. As we celebrate the anniversary of the signing of the founding document on September 17, 1787, we continue our special month of programming. In this episode of Consider the Constitution, we're talking about the First Amendment, specifically the right to peaceful assembly. Our special guest today is Jade Ryerson, a scholar who is passionate about using public history to encourage civic engagement. Jade earned her master's degree in heritage studies and public history from University of Minnesota and currently serves as the historian with the Mississippi National River and Recreation Area. Jade, welcome to Consider the Constitution. Hi, Katie. It's so great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation because we're not just going to talk about what the Constitution says, but how we as citizens put our rights into action. In our last episode, we talked with Dr. Lynn Uzel about the Bill of Rights, which are the first 10 amendments to the U.S. Constitution. And she provided great insight into why we have a Bill of Rights, as well as some of Madison's thought process for why we should and perhaps should not add a Bill of Rights to the Constitution. Now, one of the most important amendments a lot of us would think is the First Amendment, which says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peacefully to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Now, the five freedoms established in the First Amendment, the freedom of religion, speech, press, assembly, and petition, are some of the most important. And these rights are often interconnected. And as we talk today, Jade, I'm thinking about the right to peacefully assemble. And if this is a freedom that Americans have always gravitated towards, or if this is a newer trend to exercise this right? Yeah, that's a really great question, Katie. I would say that the right of assembly is definitely not a recent fad. Most of the time we think about it as going hand in hand with the right to petition, but assembly could mean anything from gathering for a parade to a picket line, as long as at least more than one person is involved. And by its very definition to assemble, you have to have at least more than one person. So the right of assembly is the only First Amendment freedom that you can't exercise alone. And there are a lot of really great examples of this from throughout U.S. history. So if you think about the lead up to the American Revolution, for example, notable protests like the Boston Tea Party didn't just happen in a vacuum. The American colonists had to get together and discuss their grievances before the British could air them publicly. So this took a lot of smaller meetings, even informal ones between neighbors and family members before the flames of revolution could really get going. And I'm glad you brought this up because most of us are probably familiar with the Boston Tea Party. Uh, This occurred in mid-December 1773 when the Sons of Liberty, in protest of taxes on tea, 
destroyed an entire shipment of tea sent by the British East India Company. Um, They dumped these chests of tea into the Boston Harbor. But what a lot of us may not realize is that this wasn't the only act of protest. In fact, about a week later, British ships delivering tea up the Delaware River were intercepted by Pennsylvania colonists. The captain of the ship was escorted to Philadelphia, where thousands of people gathered at Independence Hall in protest of the shipment. This group drafted a resolution that the tea be sent back, and the captain actually acquiesced and returned to Great Britain with the tea. Now, Madison is actually writing about this event, both the Boston Tea Party as well as what's known as the Philadelphia Tea Party. At the time, he is in his early 20s and he is corresponding with a friend, William Bradford, who is a printer in Philadelphia. Madison writes to Bradford, I congratulate you on your heroic proceedings in Philadelphia with regard to the tea. I wish Boston may conduct matters with as much discretion as they seem to do with boldness. However, Political contests are necessary sometimes, as well as military, to afford exercise and practice and to instruct in the art of defending liberty and property. I think this is fascinating to hear Madison's ideas about what these early protests looked like and what his thoughts were on it. Jade, can you talk to us a little more about protests after this point in American history? Yes, absolutely. So other examples would include labor strikes, political rallies, civil rights marches, you name it. And assembling this way is usually to demand some sort of change. But it wasn't until the women's suffrage movement in the early 20th century that public protest was really introduced into the mainstream political consciousness. So I'm thinking specifically about the first ever White House protests staged by the National Women's Party during World War I. These women were advocating for a congressional women's suffrage amendment and began picketing at the White House fence and around Lafayette Park, which is just directly to the north. I think this is a really great example of democracy in action, because at this point in time, these women couldn't even vote, but were still able to exercise their rights of assembly and petition while literally being within earshot of the president. And there are a lot of reasons why these protests became really high profile. But one way or another, these activists began a tradition of White House protests that's continued into the 20th century. And I know that jumping from the American Revolution to the women's suffrage movement is kind of painting this with a very broad brush. But these examples offer a little insight into how we can see both change and continuity over time with the right of assembly. You know, and speaking of change, I also just want to mention that the right of assembly now also applies to digital space and online gatherings as well as in-person ones, although it's still not a free for all. Yes, this is a great point, And thank you for raising it. The First Amendment protects our right to free speech and to peacefully assemble and express our views. But as we briefly touched on earlier, this doesn't mean you can say anything anywhere, anytime. Government officials and law enforcement can limit these rights to an extent. For example, private property. The First Amendment is not implicated. Private property owners don't have to allow free speech or assembly. In regard to public forums, that's a different story. And I should note that there are different types of public forums. There's traditional forums, limited forums, and non-public forums. Public forums are the ones that we're probably most familiar with. So these are venues that historically have been designated for assembly and debate, like streets, sidewalks, parks, etc. This is where you're going to have the strongest First Amendment rights. Limited forums are a type of designated public forum. This includes things like municipal meeting rooms. Non-public forums like airport terminals, military bases, polling places, 
are where you're going to have the most restriction on speech. Now, the government can impose reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions on speech in all three categories, but has limited ability to impose content-based restrictions. Now, when I think of public forums, I think of iconic ones like the ones in Washington, D.C., the National Mall, which is that grassy landscape stretching from the Capitol building to the Lincoln Memorial. Also, Lafayette Park is a good example, which is right outside the White House. Even in these public spaces, though, there is a process for exercising First Amendment rights. Can you talk a little bit about your research uh, and how we as citizens may need to take steps to legally use these spaces? Yeah, this is something that I've given some thought to um, and looked at a lot in my work. So during the 1960s, civil rights, anti-war and student protests informed the development of the standard permitting process that the National Park Service uses to regulate First Amendment demonstrations and other activities at all of its sites. So to be more specific, you would need a permit for a gathering of more than 25 people, even if the protest started spontaneously. In addition to the number of people, the permit can also limit what kinds of stuff you can have with you. Like you couldn't just build a physical structure that would obstruct use of the site or harm historic resources there. Other regulations can also shift from space to space. So if you started out protesting on the White House sidewalk, you'd have other limitations. But if you move to Pennsylvania Avenue versus Lafayette Park proper. Interesting. So even though we assume that this is kind of one collective space, there's actually different regulations based on where you're at within that one landscape. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of layers to it. And these sort of regulations can also exist elsewhere, too. So I think it's important to consider the intentions behind these kinds of limitations in the red tape. You know, gathering in public space really has such a different meaning attached to it since the pandemic hit, too. And in D.C., alongside the Secret Service and D.C. authorities, the National Park Service is enforcing these regulations to keep a lot of people safe, including protesters, bystanders, law enforcement, etc., while also protecting cultural resources and private property. So there's a lot of different factors involved. This is interesting when we start thinking about this balance of rights. We have seen an increase in protests over the past several years, and there is a balance that our government officials and law enforcement officers have to strike between public safety and individual freedoms. And as you've talked about with this permitting process that the National Park Service uses, this is something that we as citizens should be thinking about when we want to exercise our rights. There is a process that we have to follow, even though these rights are protected. And it strikes me that the message of the protest may have a direct correlation to the site of protest. And I'm curious to learn more about what you found in your research about how the meaning of protest changes depending on the physical location. This is something that's been really fascinating to me. Um, I would say that the setting is definitely important, if not always important. So often a protest at a local courthouse or other government building is because of proximity to power. So to literally put yourself within earshot of those government officials. But other times, a site could be chosen for the layers of history that are associated with a place. So this was the case for the National Women's Party in September 1918, when 40 women suffragists rallied around the base of a statue of the Marquis de Lafayette in Lafayette Park. So those activists were deliberately invoking Lafayette's role in helping the United States to secure its independence from England, and then enacted those same democratic values by staging that protest. Interesting. So you're referencing how these women are using the symbolism of that statue, what that statue of Lafayette has stood for in the past, and then creating their own meaning 
from that monument. Yes, that's a great way to put it. Members of the public are always responding to and challenging these symbolic meanings that are embedded at a place, and especially in the pursuit of civil rights. I think for us in the present, it's really important to consider how protests can reveal how the past and the present are always in conversation with one another, because we can see activists drawing on those earlier layers of history, such as uses of the site or events that took place there, and symbolic meanings for inspiration. It makes me think of my own research about protests on the National Mall and in Anacostia Park in Washington, D.C., and how these sites were specifically chosen for their association. There is a power in having landscapes that are affiliated with government structures, for example. There is a layered meaning to that. Especially with the occupation of public lands, there's just such another layer of complexity there because of that government oversight. So to give you another example, I'm thinking about after the murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protests and civil unrest that followed in May and June of 2020, D.C.'s Mayor Muriel Bowser approved the creation of a Black Lives Matter mural on 16th Street Northwest, which is directly north of Lafayette Park. And so that mural was intended to recognize the Black Lives Matter movement. But instead of being somewhere where people are able to gather and move freely, the city-sanctioned mural is now surveilled more intensely. And it's not actually as usable as a protest space because of that and the addition of bollards. So when an agency like the National Park Service is acting as both storyteller and caretaker, we have to consider how the agency's response to protest, such as through surveillance, putting in those permitting regulations or erecting physical barriers. We have to think about how those things have informed how the place is perceived in public memory, as well as how demonstrators are actually interacting with the physical space. This is an interesting point because... Earlier in our conversation, we talked about what the process is for accessing space, for example, through the permitting process. But now you're bringing up examples like physical barriers or how that space is being surveilled. That sends a message about who is welcome in that space and for what purpose. I'm curious because I think about protests and I think about the history of protest as a public historian, which is how I was trained. And I wonder how we as heritage practitioners try to understand the layers of history in these places, the connections between different protests and social movements. And perhaps most challenging, how do we share the nuances of this history with the public in a meaningful way? I really love this question. And a number of risks and rewards come to mind for me. So often I am doing this research on my computer and thinking about what people are taking away or learning when they visit the website that I'm working on or reading what I wrote, but maybe not as much about the physical embodiment or experience of a place. And I think that the right of assembly lends itself so naturally to questions about both place and power. So when you think about a place, certain ideas or values have been embedded into the landscape through its design. So if you think about monuments, that sends a certain message. And those meanings start to dominate public perception of a given place as well. Now, when a protest occurs at a site, layers of history that aren't documented or don't have a physical imprint are left unrecognized. They're intangible. So evidence of events that have involved physical change to the site, such as the attempted removal of a statue, could fade away or sometimes be intentionally cleared away through the cleanup and repair that happens afterwards to maintain a site's historic appearance. Protests and other attempted changes to a physical landscape subsequently become ephemeral and lost without public interpretation. And so our job as heritage practitioners 
is to help people consider how a site's meaning evolves with these new uses that extend beyond the designer's intended vision of a landscape. So the kind of questions I think about are, how are the past and present constantly in conversation here? And how can we reimagine these places or shed a light on previous uses? This point is a great one because it's not just limited to landscapes being used as platforms of protests. It really applies to our field broadly. It applies to all of the visitors listening who visit places like Montpelier. People who come here see the landscape as we want them to see it. We interpret the landscape at Montpelier to Madison's retirement years from 1817 to his death in 1836. But there's a lot that was on the landscape at that time that isn't visible anymore. You were speaking of being intangible and ephemeral. This is one of the challenges we grapple with, is how do we make the invisible visible to those visiting the site? Yes, thank you for mentioning that tension between a site's management and its interpretation. I kind of see the seed of an opportunity here, though. Um, I really love this kind of meta public history. Um, I think that it's actually more meaningful to invite the public to not only consider why a site is managed and interpreted in its current state, but also how those factors directly influence the visitor's experience in relationship with the space that they're in. So we have to also think about how do we facilitate that in a responsible way. So in my work, I've suggested digital interpretation through story maps or intangible interventions, such as projecting historical images onto buildings. So taking that invisible layer of history and putting it back into the physical place where those events happened. And that would fall more along the lines of public art. I'm really drawn to the potential of digital technologies to interpret these histories in a creative and dynamic way that won't adversely affect the integrity of any cultural resources at that place or inhibit the uses of that place by the public. So by visualizing the locations of different places or events, maps and digital resources can illustrate how intangible meanings and power relationships are embedded within a landscape. I've definitely seen really great examples of this through the work of the archaeology department at Montpelier as well. Yes, and you bring up another wonderful point about having access to the space and not inhibiting the public from being able to be in these places of protest. Jade Ryerson, Heritage Studies and Public History Scholar, thank you so much for sharing your research and insights. It was an honor to have you with us as we consider the Constitution. It's been really great to be here. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me today. And thank you to everyone listening to this podcast. I hope you'll subscribe and share this show with your friends and family. And join us again next week as we consider the Constitution.